When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Most of our understanding of the Mongol Empire begins and ends with Chinggis Khan and his sweep across Asia. His name is now included among conquerors whose efforts burn bright and burn out quick. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, and so on. Except the story doesn't end with Chinggis's death. As Professor Marie Favreau notes in The Horde, How the Mongols Changed the World, published by Harvard University Press earlier this year, the empire that Chinggis built continued to shape, incubate, and grow the political cultures it conquered. Even as the empire formally splintered, the ties that bound together the Mongols played a critical role in the growth of new identities and cultures. Marie Favreau is Associate Professor of History at Paris-Nanterre University. She has been a member of the French Institute of Oriental Archaeology in Cairo, a visiting scholar at the Institute for Advanced Study, and a research associate at the University of Oxford for the major project Nomadic Empires. Her books include The Golden Horde and the Mamluk Sultanate, published in French, and the graphic novel Genghis Khan. Today, Marie and I will talk about the empire the Mongols built, how it grew, what it covered, and how it changed. We'll talk about how the Mongols changed those they ruled and those they bordered against, and the geopolitical system they built. So, Marie, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Um, Your book starts mostly with the death of Chinggis Khan and kind of what happens after um, he passes on and hands over to the next generation. So... I guess, to kind of introduce um, the interview. Uh, What happens after the death of Chinggis Khan? How does the Mongol Empire change? And what does the rest of the world look like at this time? So um, thank you, first of all, for having me. Very happy to be here and to, um, you know, having this conversation and, you know, presenting my research on the Mongol Empire. So as you said in your introduction, this story starts after the death of Genghis Khan. Actually, the idea that we have of the Mongol Empire, so covering almost all of Eurasia, uh, is really um, an, a, a vision of the empire at the end of the 13th century, so two, three generations after the death of Genghis Khan. So he died in 1227, and when he died, the Mongols had conquered um, mainly northern China, they had conquered um, the Tibetan, uh, well, part of Tibet, but mainly um, the Tengut Kingdom, 
that con conquered a um, great part of Central Asia. And they wanted to, to, have, to do more, to have more conquests, especially to the West and uh, to the North. So they wanted to include the Russian principalities. But this was um, a project. And so Genghis Khan died. The uh, empire was, um, um, you know, um, divided between his uh, four, uh, four of his sons. And uh, in my book, I really focus on the uh, eldest son named Jochi, who was in charge of the north and the west of the empire and uh, is, um, you know, successor. So his own son, great son of Genghis Khan Batu, uh, was in charge, was put in charge of the conquest of the uh, what is Russia today mainly, and it would go up to the uh, Eastern Europe. So, um, in fact, um, it's interesting to concentrate on that period, so the the second half of the 13th century, when we work on the Mongol Empire, because it's where the Mongol are really. Um, shaped the Eurasian, I mean, a great part of the Eurasian uh, landmass, in fact. And um, so Genghis Khan, in a way, launched a process, but it's just a process. And then um, there are huge developments after his, uh, his death. So um, uh, I thought that um, uh, in, my, in my work that it would be interesting to know more about the West and the North of the empire because we have already a very, um, very good publication on, the, on China and on the South and the East of the empire. So that was, um, you know, uh, that was new in that sense. Um, and if we think about uh, in geopolitical terms of the world, uh, after the, um, the death of Genghis Khan, we have to... Um, uh, understand that uh, there are um, what we know today of um, China, Iran, and Russia were uh, fragmentary um, powers. Uh, so in China, we we had three powers mainly: so northern China, south South China, southern China. So the Song in the south, Qin in the north, and uh, more in in the center and in in the west. We had the Tengut. And um, in Central Asia, we had um, the um, uh, Karahitai Empire, the Khorezmian Empire, and, and then the Abbasid and Ayyubid powers who uh, were, um, uh, you know, at the, um, in Western uh, Asia. And, um, and in the north, so the, um, the Russian principalities. So all these were the important powers uh, that, you know, the Mongol, um, you know, met with and, and conquered and, and, and um, I, you know, in the 13th century. So. so one thing your book does is, I think, or one of the main messages of your book is that the kind of image we have of the Mongols as some, let's say, a rampaging horde out for plunder is incorrect. Actually, this was a very, um, that their motivations for expansion were much more complex than I think the common image of them often portrays them as. I wonder if you can kind of get into a little bit kind of what motivated uh, Mongol expansion. Yes, absolutely. So, um, and this is really connected to what I've um, um, said just um, before. The thing is, because the empire uh, would change, uh, and it's it's a very long process of a century, each time the Mongol gain a new territory, a new power, a new... Uh, integrated new subjected peoples, they would renegotiate their power with the outside world. So they would renegotiate with their neighbors. So uh, it's clear that during the time of Genghis Khan, 
we cannot really see in the sources the idea of conquering the world. No, it's really about the neighboring world of the Mongols, of the Mongol steppe, which is, let's say, that is Mongolia today. Um, if you want, you know, to um, um, have a map in your mind, and think about Mongolia today. So it's all around. And then it would, uh, it would grow and grow and grow. And each time they have a new neighbor, they would renegotiate. So first, the idea is not to be, uh, for the Mongol, the idea is not to conquer um, you know, they are not interested into um, invading new territories, but what they want is to renegotiate the trade relationship they have with their neighbors. So it starts often with trade issues. So the Mongols want to trade differently, and they have, uh, in a way, we can put it, if you, we can put it that way, aggressive way of trading. And uh, and this, this will launch, most of the time, um, new conquests. Uh, that's one thing. Um, so that's one big motivation. The other important motivation is really um, um, uh, a relationship between nomad among nomads. So it's nomad nomad war very often. Not so it's not against sedentary people against sedentary communities. Not that the Mongol wants more cities and you know sedentary wealth, but they want to submit um, all the nomad communities of Eurasia. That's very clearly, that's their world, that's what they want, that's their, you know, um, goal. And uh, because other nomadic people refused, rejected, or, you know, um, were enemies of Genghis Khan and his successors, uh, uh, this would trigger more conquest because those nomads would go as far as uh, Western Asia and, and, and Central Europe, as far as Hungary, and the Mongol behind them would, you know, uh, go after them and then and then conquer more and more people. So the motivation there are not there are a set of motivation, a series of motivation, and uh, we cannot say that there's just one big reason at the beginning. That's one big mm-hmm. ideology that they want to conquer. You know the world. No, this is really something that is built up. You know, generation after generation, year after year. And I really wanted to show that in the book. Yeah, I was going to say the the Mongols really seem to have it in for the Kipchaks at the at the beginning of the book. They seem to chase them all the way all the way to um, to Eastern Europe, as as you say. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the Kipchak were uh, among their uh, worst, you know, biggest enemies, and uh, they went after them, and they didn't submit immediately, and it took time, and then the Mongols were really after them, and not after the Russian, for instance, or not after the uh, Hungarian king. But because some of the Russian princes and the Hungarian king uh, uh, allied with the Kipchak, but then the Mongols decided to attack them as well. So um, it's it's interesting to see how our, our yeah it's like a I don't know if I can say that well like a snowball you know thing um, and uh, how it developed. So we really have to see it as a long process. Um, I want to cycle back to something you said earlier, which was um, about trade, how renegotiating or um, maybe aggressively negotiating uh, trade relations was part of the motivation for expansion. Um, And so I just want to kind of ask, what what was the kind of trade structure that the Mongols tried to build within their empire? And I guess in short, how did they benefit from it? Well, um, 
what what we know, what we see is very early on under Genghis Khan already, uh, the Mongols uh, wanted to develop their uh, trade network. So they wanted to, to trade with um, faraway people and they wanted to trade, so for, you know, um, silk, but textiles, but not only also for metal and for, you know, uh, manufactured objects, um, ceramics, anything. And uh, it's clearly very early on um, a, 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 um, something, a, a crucial thing for the Mongol. I, I really wanted to explain that in my book, the fact that why, I mean, this is a good question, you know, why this is so crucial for the Mongols or for this specific nomadic societies. Um, it's it's not only about, you know, getting more wealth and, you know, getting more luxury items, but it's also because they need to circulate and redistribute uh, things, objects, because this is how they created their social um, glue, their social link. So they have to share and to redistribute and, and circulate things. And it's not about, uh, you know, um, getting more and more like capitalizing. Uh, it's really about redistribution. Um, so, they, so they want to have the um, yeah. They want to have a, a, a more stuff to redistribute. And um, in fact, um, they um, very early on to they decided to use coins and coinage. So they produced their own coinage. First, they used um, Islamic coinage and Chinese coinage. Uh, but then they also produced their own and they mixed, you know, um, existing um, coins and they uh, they used um, uh, paper bills and uh, also in the, in the East, they tried to um, uh, issue also um, um, paper coinage, let's say, uh, in the South, in Iran, it didn't work. But then they had really, they worked um, a lot on how to, on the tools of exchange, you know. So they were interested in trading, but also in how to, how to trade more uh, and uh, e- and more easily. And uh, and they were also produced. So they produced also a lot of um, uh, trade contracts. Um, they um, also valued a lot uh, merchants and traders. And they created uh, new statues for traders, even for, you know foreign traders. So. The, the most perhaps famous foreign trader that were integrated into the you know Mongol Empire was uh, perhaps Marco Polo, uh, and there were you know several Italian traders that we know by name uh, that were um, were hired really by by the Mongol rulers to uh, to trade for them, and um, so this is really a key uh, aspect uh, of their of their power. They see it as a key aspect of their power, um, and. Um, and you can, in my book, I really wanted to show also how this developed, uh, how they changed the rules, how they try to uh, secure uh, some routes, control them as well. Uh, so it's um, uh, it's not something that Genghis Khan built in the early 13th century and then it's it's done. It's really something that you see in development. Uh, and they want more and more trade partners. So they want to reach well beyond their own frontiers. So they will reach up to Western Europe, up to Northern Europe. And I work also on that, you know, their connection with, you know, um, Scandinavian communities and, and and even England, how they were all integrated actually in their uh, huge trade network. So uh, in that sense, they are extremely, uh, really fascinating power. It's really, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of unusual, the, the scale of the networks they developed. 
So what was it like to be a vassal king to the Mongols? Um, it seems like, especially I think in your discussion about Russia, um, the Mongols come in and a lot of the power structures in Russia seem perfectly capable of operating under the Mongols. Um, but if you were a vassal uh, and you signed these agreements or, or you agreed these relations with the Mongols, what were your obligations and how much autonomy did you have? Well, yeah, that's a, a very important point. Um, uh, so first of all, it depends um, it depends if you had submitted of your own free will or not. So there are a lot of um, statutes. So there are a lot of different statutes within the Mongol Empire. And uh, so there, I, I will come to the Russian, but before, if you think about the Uyghur ruler who submitted really on his own free will and very voluntarily, uh, he had and his you know lineage and his uh, own you know family had a very good position within the Mongol Empire. So if you would, you know, join freely, I mean, willingly, uh, then you would have a very good and strong position. Uh, for for um, sedan, I mean, sedentary and, you know, also um, people were really seen as on the border like the Russian princes. Uh, there were very early on sort of agreement between them and the Mongols. So the idea was to visit the ruler, Mongol uh, rulers of the Khan courts uh rather often and to stay at the Han's courts um sometimes a year or several months to really meet face to face with the Mongol ruler and his family so the the Mongols want to be close to their vassals they want to know them uh and uh, often also they are uh they um also uh wanted their vassals to to marry um, Mongolian princesses. So it was really seen as a privilege to marry a Mongolian princess. And uh, it was not, you know, um, offered to anyone. So it was really a big privilege. And uh, after that, so that would seal the, the agreement in a way. And the last important thing is the use of the, um, we call it the hostage institution. But the idea was to, you you would leave as a, as a vassal your uh, own son or nephew, or let's say your, um, how can I put that, like your, your, your um, intended successor, to the Mong- at the Mongol court, he would remain there with um, the Mongol, you know, uh, rulers, family and companions, um, and he would be trained at the Mongol court. Um, he would be trained and would be also he would learn also the language probably, and uh, he would become a, a loyal uh, vassal in turn. Uh, but also, it would make um, the you know the vassals. Um, loyal because they have their sons at, at court and that's why we call it also the hostage institution in a way but we have to see so of course they are it's um, a domination tool from the Mongols but it's also the way they envision uh, governing uh, and they want to be it's an empire so it's very you know multiple communities where in multiple religions and cultures and languages but at the same time they uh, want them to come to uh, the Mongol camp, um, main camp, and to know the Mongols. So that's something uh, I think that is, is rather well uh, interesting to see. And it worked well uh, in, in, in many cases. So to move on to a different topic, what, what were the Mongol centers of power like? 
Um, they obviously don't live in established sedentary cities like other empires had as the centers of power. Um, the book talks about these these tent cities. Um, I guess what were these tent cities like? Yeah, so um, exact uh, that's exactly yeah, uh, the way I I, I, I try to um, you know to to. Uh, um, um, explain it to, also to my students, those tent cities. So I call them also hordes. That's why I kept the title for my book, uh, because it's, it's a key, it's a key word. Um, so it's an old, uh, word, or that, or do we have it in different, you know, um, uh, under different pronunciation in the sources? It's, it's a term that was used before the Mongols by other nomadic powers. And it would, um, um, uh, it, 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 how can I? Well, it was a, a camp, a military camp, but not only. It was also um, the um, uh, rulers' women households. It would uh, include um, um, the craftsmen. It would include the traders. It would include all the people who uh, followed the ruler or the the you know ruling family members. Um, uh, during their uh, nomadic migration. And um, so this moving city, so I call it like mobile city or moving city, though, um, was, um, so they were assembled uh, in the Mongol Empire and I really worked on how many um, they were in the west of the Mongol Empire and where they were and where, where they moved and how they moved. But all those um, uh, tent cities or mobile cities or hordes were really the centers of, of uh, you know, um, of, of power, of administration, of government. Uh, and uh, even if the Mongols uh, always also um, favored building of, um, yeah, buildings of cities, settlements, villages, so they don't really want to destroy sedentary life at all. They also financed, sponsored um, building constructions of, you know, religious monuments um yeah um, of cities but power was concentrated in um you know um uh, hordes and you know mobile cities so uh camps and that make um you know um their the, their way of ruling was so different from other empires because they have this mobility and says you know they are it's very seasonal way of moving and uh, they move along rivers, and I really wanted to explain that in my book for people to understand that uh, because um, it's not because they don't have major capital city like Rome, um, uh, it doesn't mean that it's not a very advanced organized power, and, and, and it doesn't mean that it's not an empire. An empire doesn't need a, a capital city like Rome. You can you know, create a big, huge, empire, powerful empire like the Mongols. With, with cities, but, you know, with also mobile center of power, which, uh, which is what they did. And, uh, and then uh, another important part of my research is also to understand how they communicate, communicate and connect in between, you know, these uh, mobile centers. Because uh, it's interesting to see how they, you know, were able to uh, build up like itinerary sent envoys how how fast the invoice could go from a horde to another, so from you know a, a river to another, how they crossed rivers and how they traveled and all that. So that's also yeah um, really part of their uh, domination tools. And um, 
I think that, yeah, um, it's not totally specific to the Mongols because they were nomadic powers before them, but the scale of the Mongol Empire make it so, you know, impressive and in a way different. So one of the, let's call them historical turning points, I think, in, in the book, at least from my reading of it, was um, when the Khans converted to Islam. Um, and obviously, they, they, they were still attacking Islamic um, cultures, so it didn't, you know, lead to huge change in their behavior. But I guess kind of how, how important um, is the conversion to Islam um, by the Khans in kind of understanding the development of the Mongol Empire? Well, yeah, that's a, a, um, also a crucial issue. And it's specifically important when you work on the Western part of the Mongol Empire because it's where the Mongols converted um, first. So um, th- there are two ways to answer. So first for Islam. Well, let's say that the Mongol destroyed the main uh, Islamic centers uh, in Central Asia and even in uh, Western Asia in the uh, first half of the 13th century. So they um, uh, forced the Abbasid to, um, um, uh, to, to fly away. They went to, to Cairo. Uh, they uh, destroyed the Ayyubid power, so um, the Khorezmian power as well. Um, uh, and they were a, a kind of, you know, a vacuum of power um, in, in the, um, you know, in the Islamic world. Uh, the ruler of um, the western part of the Mongol Empire called Berke um, clearly converted to Islam in the mid-13th century because it was probably politically uh, clever to do that because of the vacuum of power. So he could suddenly become, you know, the new leader. There's no more real caliph. There's, there are no more, you know, Ayyubid rulers. There's no more sultan. Uh, in fact, they were, especially in India, but he wanted to claim, you know, some of the, um, you know, um, um, yeah, the, the, the Muslim leadership, let's say. Uh, and uh, he allied with a new power that just took shape in Egypt and, you know, a little bit in Syria uh, that we know uh, today under the name of the Mamluk, Mamluk Sultanate. And the Mamluk needed um, uh, slave warriors for their armies. And uh, these slave warriors... Uh, came most of them from the um, um, uh, the, the Arabian steppe, especially the Black Sea steppe area and the Cauc- Northern Caucasus. All these areas were under the Mongol, under the control of the Mongols at that time. So uh, the um, this Mongol ruler Berke uh, really uh, re- decided to um, uh, um, re- uh, made an agreement actually with the Mamluk Sultan and uh, uh, authorized the um, the slave trade. And this is a, a key uh, a key thing because it will change the balance of power in the uh, Islamic world on the long run because the Mamluk would become at the end, already at the end clearly of the, at the end of the 13th century one of the major Islamic powers of uh, of the world uh, and um, and this is really because of this connection with the with the Mongols. So, um, so that's one important thing. So the Mongols are not simply the one who destroyed Baghdad and, and killed the caliph. They are also the one who promoted the Mamluk system. So that's something I, I really want to, um, you know, uh, underline now and, and I did in my book. The second uh, aspect that we have to consider is it's not because some of the Mongol rulers, especially in the north of Eurasia, are converted to Islam, that the Mongol turned totally to Islam and just, you know, 
um, 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 fight uh, the other uh, religions. The Mongol had this um, developed um, a set of rules, set of policies uh, that we call, um, because it's a bit convenient, the Mongol toleration or Mongol tolerance. But actually, the idea was to um, accept a, um, um, different religions as long as the religious leaders um, um, supported the Mongols. So uh, because the Christian, uh, the, we mentioned the Russian, but we could think about, um, you know, also the Armenians um, um, and also the Jewish communities in, in Crimea supported um, the uh, Mongol ruler, then they were accepted and they were even protected by um, the by the Mongols. So um, they converted to Islam, but at the same time they maintained this system of uh, religious toleration that you know, um, um, uh, which included you know um, um, other religions, mainly Christians, Jewish religions, and Buddhist Taoists. This is more for the for the East. And um, uh, to finish on this, um, it goes. It's it's not only that they uh, let them practice their religion. It's it, it goes really um, uh, deeper uh, into you know um, uh, lo- local and social life in a sense that the Mongols. Um, um, exempted from taxes and from conscription, the uh, religious leaders of these uh, communities. So it means that if we think just about the Russian Orthodox, that they would gain uh, a lot of you know uh, money in a way from this tax exemption, um, thanks to this you know Mongol toleration uh, policy, and uh, they would build more you know churches and schools, and they would benefit. From from this uh, from the whole system, and uh, probably we have the same. You know, um, uh, we can see the same in you know other other areas, especially in the east. But that we you know, I concentrate on the west, and it's clear that you know the Christians were very were really welcome and had very strong position in in the hordes or in the um, western part of the Mongol Empire, even even though the the rulers were uh, Muslims. So. Um, yeah, that's something to consider, absolutely. So I think I have I have one more question about um, about the Mongol Empire and, and how it related to um, the people it ruled over before kind of maybe moving on to its the Mongol Empire's relevance to the present day. But again, um, my, my last question about the Mongol Empire and its relations to the people it conquered was the Mongol Empire, I think, plays a very large role, at least in... Uh, let's call it the official tellings of um, Russian history. Uh, the Mongols play a key role, I think, in the official narrative of the creation of Russia. But when looking at kind of the actual history, uh, how are the Mongols key to the creation of Russia and of Russian political identity? Well, yeah, that's um, that's a, a, a very um, complicated issue and interesting at the same time. And in my book, I really... Although the book is not about the Russian, but and, and really about the Mongol, I really wanted to show how their relationship was, you know, how how um, you know um, formative it was for the um, um, for the Russian, you know, power and society. And uh, so, let's say first of all that we think about Russia today or the Russians, so, but in the early 13th century, the, they were 
um, it, they were fragmentary power, fra fragmentary societies. They, the what we call the Russian were um, principalities, and they were they did not have like one single strong identity. Of course, the Mongol forced them to um, to be together because for the Mongols it was much easier to dominate one single, you know, organized power than, you know, petty, fragmentary communities and, you know, we're at war all the time. So they really wanted the Russian um, to, to be one group, you know, if I can put it that way. And um, uh, also they asked them to pay uh, tributes, to pay taxes, but one tribute. So they forced all these people to pay one one big you know tributes and they for them to be in relationship with each other with one another so um so that's uh part of the process of you know unification of you know the the russian um, that you know transformed the uh the russia the russians and um the other important and interesting thing is how they interfered with the system of um, uh, princely succession. So in, in this um, uh, Russian land, you had one uh, uh, grand prince who, you know, was, you know, on top of the other princes. And uh, the, the Mongols, uh, not at the very beginning, but after, you know, after some time, decided really to, um, 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 it's not that they decided, but, they really uh, wanted to identify um, one family, one one dynastic lineage, because it was easier for them too to have, you know, um, one clear vassal. So um, after, um, yeah, uh, rather quickly actually, they they start to support the um, Moscow, the, the Muscovite line, but that was not. Um, that was not the case at the beginning. So it was not something they decided, but it's just something that's, that is clear at some point. The source is very clear in the 14th century that the Mongol really um, supported um, Moscow. Uh, and, uh, and this, of course, will have huge consequences. So I, I wanted to show that in the book. And uh, so it's a complicated legacy, actually, because the Russian had to uh, also... Uh, you know, fight the Mongols, but also the gain from them. Uh, and it's important, I think, and it's fair to show the whole, the, the complexity of the thing. Um, the other important point um, is the um, uh, the fact that the, I, clearly in the beginning of the 13th century, these Russian principalities were on the periphery of Eurasia. They were not leaders in terms of trade. Uh, they were not really integrated into, they were a little bit integrated into the Islamic, uh, you know, um, trade network, but not really completely integrated. And with the Mongols, they became completely part of it. So because, you know, they were part of the empires, uh, they gained a lot of, you know, the Mongol rules of exchange, the um, Mongol way of, you know, um, opening doors uh, in between communities because they wanted people to trade uh, their subjects to be open to let others um, pass through their lands and you know so the Mongol really forced um, the Russian princes to um, open up uh, doors and then uh, this also will certainly have an impact on the way you know Russian Russia developed afterwards so um, I, I'm not saying that there is a this 
you know, direct legacy or that. Uh, but but still, this is a very a key moment for um, uh, for the you know development of the Russian principalities. And it's and when I had to explain why after certainly a harsh moment of conquest. Um, we can see through sources and you know archaeology uh, construction of stone churches and you know um, um, development of of craftsmanship and and a, a kind of yeah um, 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 you know economic growth uh, uh, at the end of the 13th and the early 14th century in the Russian principalities. When I had to explain that, that's a word. The, the work of the historian, we need to understand that. So, um, uh, so the picture is, I wanted to show the complex picture of, you know, this relationship between Mongols and, and Russians. So uh, I have, again, one last question and kind of gestures a bit to the, to the present day. Um, the book talks about the, I mean, let's call it the uh, Pax Mongolica, uh, Mongolica um, the idea that within the Mongol Empire, um, that created a structure that led to trade, um, the safety and security within the Mongol Empire helped encourage uh, migration, trade, sharing of information. Um, in a similar way that I think people talk about the uh, Pax Romana, or to use a contemporary example, the Pax Americana, the idea that an empire, a hegemon, um leads to security and safety, which then allows for trade and commerce and international exchange and everything. But it seems like as you continue through the history of the Mongol Empire, rather than offer security, uh, the Mongols' superior status seems to instead be a source of instability. So I guess to kind of end the interview, what lessons do you think the Mongol Empire poses for uh, contemporary history today? Well, yeah, that's um, uh, that's a, a, a very uh, interesting question. So, actually, if I can start to um, answer the first um, aspect of your question about the Pax Mongolica. So, in the book, I really move to um, uh, the um, to what I call the Mongol exchange. To uh, I develop this notion. I you know analyze it, and I thought, okay, Pax Mongolica. What doesn't work with Pax Mongolica? First. It, what doesn't work is that it's it looks like close to Pax Romana, and this is a very different kind of empire and a different period. The other thing is that you know uh, worried me was in um, word Pax, uh, as you said. Uh, also, you mentioned instabilities, and so it's not about peace uh, at all. And in fact, when you look at the this you know construction of the Mongol Empire, this long process of you know at the end, if you look at the Western part of the Mongol Empire, it's three centuries. Um, uh, you see that um, it's not um, that you have a conquest period and then conquest end and then a peace with, you know, development of trade and you know, new institution. From the very uh, beginning, there, there are war of conquest, there are, there's violence, and at the same time, there are new rules, new policies, there's trade, um, there's diplomacy, so it's all uh, it goes together, and um, so I like the idea, uh, and I really wanted to do that in my book to put together this um, to connect more and better these two um, phenomenon of the one of the conquest and the violence, and the one of you know that is more trade and exchange. 
So uh, also there's another thing that and that explains why I I choose this um, uh, um, you know phrase of you know the Mongol exchange. It was not uh, invented by me. That was used also by by some of my colleagues. Um, the the thing is, the Mongol created clearly a new order in Eurasia, a new way of trading, a new uh, new opportunities also for people, not only for traders but also you know for missionaries, travelers, for religious leaders, for intellectuals uh, and, and scholars, so um, and scientists, uh, and uh, so, so they created something new. Okay, but at the same time, they did not control everything. It's something that is beyond them, clearly. That it's something that reached, you know, Western Europe, that reached, um, you know, other parts of the world that were not directly under the power of the Mongols. And uh, I, I think that what I like in the, um, um, you know, this phrase of the Mongol exchange, it's like for the Colombian exchange, as we say, for, uh, you know, um, um, the, the so-called discovery of U.S., but that is in of America, which was in fact, you know, a, a sudden moment of connection of faraway areas and the consequences of, uh, of these new, you know, connections. Uh, and that's exactly what we see for the Mongol Empire. So I, I like also to use sometimes the term of globalization, um, uh, although, of course, it's not exactly like today, but still, this suddenly connection of faraway areas, suddenly new uh, transfer of, you know, technologies, um, new trade uh, opportunities, but also uh, new uh, new disease, new, uh, you know, uh, epidemic and you know uh, so it's it's a it's a wider phenomenon and uh, I really wanted to to show that in the book that the Mongols are not in control of everything at all and um, they 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 were leaders they produced uh, certainly new wealth new new opportunities they produced violence as well uh, but also they had to themselves adapt to you know bigger phenomenon. And uh, of course, in the book, I also talk about the, the what we call the Black Death, but you know the plague, um, uh, huge plague pandemic uh, of the uh, mid 14th century, and how the Mongols cope with it, and you know the consequences for for their for their own system, the pressure on their own political system, and um, I think uh, that uh, in in that sense, it's uh, it's very interesting for us today. I mean, it's sounds, you know, uh, familiar in certain ways, this moment of, you know, globalization with all its positive aspects and all its more, you know, complicated and, and uh, even negative aspects as well. So I think that, yeah, um, uh, there are here, you know, something that explains why there is so much interest in the Mongol Empire and the Mongol, um, you know, um, great Mongol exchange uh, now, today, uh, again, because, yeah, we, it's interesting to see how, how human societies, you know, um, well, dealt with um, this global phenomenon uh, in the past. And um, uh, also, uh, I would uh, maybe to hand on that, um, the way uh, the Mongol um, uh, connected you know, because today we have this vision of the world that is very much shaped by nation states, uh, and we have to think about um, the world uh, through with internet. It's it's easier now to uh, to a world that um, that is uh, without frontiers or where frontiers are you know um, not 
um, the the one of the nation states, and uh, in the medieval period during uh, Mongol, you know, this big Mongol moment. Um, well, uh, it's not the uh, nation uh, nation state of today. The map is very different, so we have to have in mind a different map to build up a different map, and uh, and that's why I think it's you know it's it's interesting to think about you know human history. So, for uh, example, for a French like me, um, the Mongols are you know in a way part of my history because um, uh, I'm a citizen of the world, and that's uh, it's, it's interesting for me you know. To know how you know what what were the, the Mongol uh, what did the Mongol create and how you know they manage and how um, you know um, what what they made possible um, during this big globalization moment that we call the Mongol Exchange. So, with that, thank you for listening to our interview with Professor Marie Favreau, author of The Horde: How the Mongols Changed the World. Marie, I have. One actual last question for you. Uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Well, they can, um, so they can uh, find my book, The Horde, just recently published, I think, in, you know, uh, most uh, libraries and, and in many bookshops. Um, and they can order it online uh, easily. And uh, they can also find, of course, some of my uh, articles for free on, on my website, academic website. And, uh, and also my next project, very much connected to what I just said about the Great Mongol Exchange, uh, it's going to be a big exhibition on the Mongols. I wanted to show um, wider audience um, the objects uh, that the Mongol created, produced, used, exchanged, circulated and uh, so it will be this big yeah exhibition that will take place in in France first and hopefully in other parts of the world in 2023-2024. So you can follow me Nicholas Gordon on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon that's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and you're listening to the Asian Review Books podcast now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to, if you want to support us continuing to review those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week... Join us for an interview with Suchitra Vijayan, author of Midnight's Borders, A People's History of Modern India. But before then, Marie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation.